0: There's so much money to be made in all sorts of areas. If people would actually design things for women, having women in mind, starting the process from the position of, let's collect data on women and find out what they need and want, rather than just, here's the thing we made for men, let's make it pink and try and sell it to women. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All. Conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist.
1: Welcome to a very special episode of the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. In this episode, I spoke with Caroline Criado Perez, author of Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Caroline is a writer, broadcaster, and award-winning campaigner. Her notable campaigns include getting a female historical figure on the Bank of England banknotes, getting Twitter to introduce a report abuse button on tweets, and getting the first statue of a woman in London's Parliament Square. Obviously, these are pretty big things. Her second book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, spent 14 weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list and is being translated into 12 languages. Not to oversell this episode from the beginning, but I would say that her book and the conversation that you're about to hear has been one of the conversations that's maybe most profoundly changed my thinking about the world since I began doing the show. So broadly, she makes the argument that there is a big data gap around women. And this is the consequence of the fact that historically, women were excluded from public life. So just we weren't paying attention to them, we weren't counting them. And so as a consequence of that, they are left out from a lot of our data sets, especially when we look at historical data sets. But as a second consequence of that, we also have what she calls male default thinking. So this idea that when we think of a person, we tend to think of a man. And we tend to think that if we design a solution for men, it'll work pretty well for everybody. And she really pushes back on that in this episode. She identifies lots of places, including in the technology space, where things don't work as well for women, often because we didn't include women in our initial design decisions about them. Women weren't represented well in data sets in which we based our models, etc. And while I think bleeding heart feminists will enjoy this episode, I want to clarify that Although this episode focuses specifically on women and data bias around women and problems that women experience, that doesn't mean that they're the only problems that exist. It doesn't mean that they are more important than other kinds of problems, but nonetheless, they are problems and they're worth attending to and thinking about in a really critical way. So aside from sort of the gender piece, one of the things I really enjoyed about our conversation is Caroline's great at identifying the kinds of assumptions we're making around the world, right? And when we take a second to examine those assumptions, and we look at them through a gendered lens. We look at, are these assumptions equally true for both men and women? A lot of times she discovers that no, they're not, that women actually exhibit different patterns of behavior. um, They have different maybe biological constraints that really would make those assumptions pretty invalid for women if we were stopping to think about them more carefully. So one of the things I love about this conversation is that it helps me identify different kinds of assumptions that I'm making about the world and just reflecting on whether we think those are good assumptions or bad assumptions, whether there are other kinds of solutions to problems that we've been overlooking. And I'll give a caveat that while this episode starts out a little bit by identifying just places where, to put it quite frankly, women are screwed, places where we see real consequences for this data gap for women, as the conversation progresses, we also turn to other kinds of important questions about Questions we should ask about our data sets, right? How did this happen? How can we prevent it? How can designers and developers make products that work better for for women? And and that means more people broadly. The episode also touches on a few fundamental um, principles that we focus here on Innovation for All About. That includes who makes products and solutions matters. And that if you have a diversity of perspectives, you're going to, as a consequence, have more different kinds of solutions developed. And also that actually doing user research is important. It's not enough to just identify a problem and think that you have a good solution to it. You have to actually go out into the field, test it with users and see what what they think. Does it actually solve the problem for them in the way that you believe? And before we get to today's episode, a final quick request. I like this show. I think the conversations that we have are valuable, that they introduce new ideas that may have been previously ignored. I want to see it grow. And if you enjoy Innovation for All and you agree, the best thing you can do to support us right now is to help share it with a friend you think might enjoy it. So with that, I'll ask you to pause this episode right now and text someone you know who either works in data or helps develop solutions to problems and send them a link to this episode. It really is the best way to help Innovation for All grow. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Caroline Criado-Perez, author of Invisible Women. Caroline Criado-Perez, welcome to Innovation for All.
0: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: So I was just starting to tell you offline before we began recording, um, the person who recommended your book to me knows that I, I've read like two books in my adult lifetime. <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but barely. And she said like, you've got to read this book. And I'm like, neat, thanks for the recommendation. And then she wrote back and said, like, no, no, you've got to read this book. In fact, would you like me to copy over some excerpts for you, for you to peruse it? <laughs> And I was like, uh, sure. And then she did. She copied over excerpts from the book that she thought I would find interesting. And that's what got me hooked. So for all of those and that was
0: what like got you to actually read your third book in your yes. own adult life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. So just for, for those so honored.
1: You should, you should. It's very rare. And for the people who are listening, for me to say that I recommend this book, that is an extremely high compliment. <laughs> 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 I think. Not to schmooze too much at the beginning, but I think this is honestly one of the most important books I've read. I mean, obviously the bar is a little bit low for me personally, but um in terms of <laughs> in terms of content that's changed my thinking about many, many broad things. So my goal today is to unpack that in a reasonable, logical way and not just like a raving fangirl.
0: <laughs> so I um, think raving fangirl works for me. You know? Okay, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so to kick it off, can you walk through it at sort of a very basic level? What is male default thinking?
0: Basically, the vast majority of us, and this is women as well as men, when we picture a human being, we picture a man. And we don't realize that we're doing that. You know, I didn't notice until I was 26 and read a book pointing out that this was something that people did. And it was only at that point that I suddenly realized that whenever I pictured a person, I was picturing the opposite sex. And you'd sort of think that, Because I'm a woman, I would notice that I'm doing it, but I didn't notice because it's so ingrained, it's so ingrained in all of us. And the result is that historically, and it continues today, the vast majority of information that we have in the world, of data, has been collected on typical male lifestyle patterns and male bodies. And the result is that we design things for those lifestyle patterns and those bodies, but because Male is the default. We don't say that that's what we're doing. So we sort of think that we're acting gender neutrally and we think that we're designing gender neutrally. But the reality is we are very, very often designing with a heavy male bias. And it's just sort of everywhere. As soon as you start looking into this, you realize that there are just these huge data gaps and these huge design biases pretty much in everything from government policy to medication, you know, even to car crash test dummies is perhaps the most sort of obvious one and I think one that makes people understand how glaring this bias is and how much we don't notice it because as soon as it's pointed out that actually the car crash test dummy that we've used for decades has been based on the 50th percentile male and once that's said aloud you just think but this is ridiculous how could that have happened well it happened because default male thinking is so ingrained and is so pervasive that something as ridiculous as that as testing the safety of a car on an average man thinking the average man reflects an average human just never got questioned
1: no and i love the the crash test dummy example for the reason you said it's something we're all familiar with but but just to back up to point out some examples of male default thinking that I've experienced is, you know, when I, when I cross the street and I see the walk and don't walk sign, the shape of the, the figure for the walk symbol is, is a male figure. But I know that that communicates everybody walk. And I don't feel when I see that sign, like, oh, just men walk. I know that that means me too.
0: Um, that you know, when you see the little green man, you're thinking, oh, that's a little green man, even though, you know, that it represents, I can walk. And that's because Man is not meant to represent man, he's meant to represent humanity, but it's actually very dangerous to allow man to represent humanity. First, because it means that we end up designing for men rather than for humans. But second of all, and I think this is the more dangerous bit, that we don't notice we're doing it. And that makes it so much harder to fight against because we're not even naming what we're doing.
1: No, that's such an important point. So let's get back to the crash test dummy example. So let's say, you know, the 40, 50, 60 years ago when crash tests were being sort of standardized, we Mm -hmm. used the 50th percentile male. Sort of so what? Are there consequences of that?
0: Yeah, there are huge consequences of that. Basically what it means is that the safety features of cars and the layout of the car is designed around someone that has a male body, a typical male body or an average male body. So this male crash test dummy is too tall and too heavy and in all sorts of ways doesn't reflect you know, what the female body is like. So for example, no tests have ever been done on how seatbelts interact with breasts and women therefore wear seatbelts improperly because they don't fit us well, but we are seen as the ones who are doing it wrong. Similarly, there has never yet been designed a seatbelt that works for pregnant women. And, you know, the number one cause of death from a fetal death from trauma is car crashes. And then, you know, things like the standard seating position that is based around the average male as well. And so women tend to have to sit further forward in order to be able to reach the pedals, you know, which is quite an important part of driving. And being able to see over the dashboard, again, quite an important part of driving. But being in that position moves us out of the standard seating position and means that we are at much more risk in a frontal collision. And ultimately, because of you know, all these things put together, when women are involved in a car crash, they are 47% more likely to be seriously injured. And we're talking life-changing injuries here. You know, this isn't just a bump and a scratch. more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die than a man in the same car crash. So it's a pretty big impact in order to just design based on this average male body.
1: Now, this is, again, my favorite example because I'm completely familiar with what a crash test summit is and looks like. And never in my life did I think like, huh, should there be a second one that looks more like a woman? <laughs> never yeah. did that occur to well, me. And, and I mean, the things, the things you pointed out. The other reason that I liked this book, I think taking a step back from the gender issues specifically, is this idea of pointing out fundamental assumptions that we overlook. So this mm-hmm. thing you mentioned where you know the car moves the seat forward so we can reach the pedals if you're a little bit shorter and you're, you're now closer to the airbag, you're closer to the front the front of the car. I never thought maybe the pedals should be the ones, the, the things that move. And, right. and maybe, maybe that that's a better solution, but like what world would we live in where that even happens? It's, it's just funny to think that that assumption is so ingrained that we are overlooking all kinds of other solutions as a consequence.
0: Yeah. So, but I mean, this is why it's so important to collect data. Because if you have to collect data on... Men and women, and if you have to sex to segregate that data, you know you inevitably come across these kinds of issues. If data had been collected on female car crash test dummies as well as male car crash test dummies, they would have realised that there was this big problem. But you know, even today, so in uh, 2011 and 2015, you know, the, the US in 2011 and the EU in 2015 sort of belatedly seemed to realise that women exist and developed what they called. A female car crash test dummy, but it's not actually a female car crash test dummy, it's just a scaled down male dummy. And of course, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, you know, issues like pregnancy, issues like breast tissue, you know, women aren't just scaled down men. There's also other differences, you know, like muscle mass in the neck. Women are much more likely to suffer from whiplash if they're in a car crash, three times more likely. And so this car crash test dummy is still, you know, using default male. But even more shocking than that, in the EU, The gender data gap is not a conspiracy. It really isn't. You know, I don't think that car designers or cardiologists, you know, are evil and want women to die. I think on the whole, it really is just we're so stuck in this mode of thinking. But I do find it hard to understand how EU regulators in 2015, you know, finally realized we should try and introduce something approximating a woman. But they only introduced this test into one out of the five regulatory tests and only in the passenger seat. And I find that staggering. Because at that point, you have acknowledged that it's not good enough, only, you know, acting like the average man as the average human. And yet, you're still acting like the average man as the average human, and only including women, you know, as a sort of outlier, as a sort of niche, atypical, well, we'll stick them in the passenger seat for one test. I don't get the logic to that at all. And I find that really hard to, to explain or to understand.
1: Well, and once the, let's say the US rolled out the, the 50th percentile, again, male scaled down version of a quote unquote female, what did they find? I mean, was there a difference in crash safety that was validated?
0: Yeah. The, the crash safety results absolutely plummeted because the cars are more dangerous for women. But again, the testing wasn't done in all of the seats and for all the tests. So, you know, basically the passenger seat, it seems much, much more dangerous than the driver's seat, but that may not in fact be the case. We just don't know because the issue is we haven't collected the data. And so it's more or less impossible to be able to tell a woman what is the safest car for her to drive because just there's just no data out there. While well, I was just thinking of, of this example that a friend told me that made me so cross, very annoyingly of her, she told me after the book had already been published, so it's not in the book, um, here's some extra bonus information for innovation for all listeners. She told me that when she bought her car, she looked in the manual and the manual said, don't drive with the seat at the furthest forward setting because that's dangerous. Well, she has to drive with it at the furthest forward seat setting because she can't reach the pedals otherwise. And she's five foot three, which is the average height for a woman in the UK. So they they haven't created it so that it's safe for the average woman to be able to drive. What about a short woman? It's just staggering. This is actually a car that is allowed to be manufactured and driven on British roads.
1: I will say the other caveat I'll give for this book is um, I've never wanted to throw a book around the room more than this book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I honestly had to take it in chunks because I think of myself as someone who's interested in diversity issues very broadly, not literally in a dispassionate way, but kind of from a curiosity sort of intellectual perspective. And then Mm -hmm. every now and again, I'll come across some work that reminds me like, oh, by the way, you're also a woman. And some of these things do affect you in a very direct way. And this is one of those books. So I I have to also warn listeners that if you are a woman who gets agitated by learning about injustices in the world, um, you may want to throw this book across the room. (laughs) But but I think it's worth pushing through nonetheless.
0: No, it's, I mean, that's one of the number one things I've been told that the people had to throw it across the room and also that it took them a really long time to read because it made them so angry. <laughs> um, yeah. But, well, but and also, so I think people think it's worth it.
1: And I agree as, as well. I, I recommend getting through it. Well, and so I think the crash to example examples, great. Like I mentioned, because it's something we're all familiar with. It's obvious sort of once you point it out and you go like, huh, how did we not notice that before? And as you pointed out, there are consequences for, for that oversight Oh, by the way, also, um, a quick aside, Um, I'm pregnant again, and I had never heard anything about pregnancy and seatbelts ever, literally ever in my whole life. So yeah, thanks for pointing that out to people who might not know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just, I really want someone to sort that out because there actually isn't a solution. So in, in my Twitter mentions, you know, this conversation was happening and someone said, oh, we bought this special you sort of adjust a thing that you can buy and add onto the seatbelt and it's specifically for pregnant women. And I looked into it and it is tested to pass this particular EU regulation. And I looked at the EU regulation and that regulation specifies a male car pressure test dummy. So amazing. I don't know exactly what they did, but as far as I can tell, they've tested a pregnancy <laughs> device on a 50th percentile male crash test dummy. It's incredible. So just
1: generally, I think you you do a great job pointing out throughout the whole book that there are gender data gaps that affect the output we create and the solutions we develop. And I was wondering if we could just hit a couple in the in the tech
0: space. Right. I think the issue with tech is that it sort of touches on almost every aspect of our lives and increasing aspects of our lives. And a lot of these tech solutions are driven by algorithms that have been trained on data that is hopelessly male biased and severely lacking when it comes to female data. And the result of that is that a whole load of tech solutions for all sorts of things just don't work very well for women. So, for example, voice recognition software has been for the most part trained on databases that are about 70% male and the result is that they work for men about 70% better. Voice recognition software is much more likely to recognize a male voice than a female voice and you know this can be things like Alexa or Siri not recognizing a woman's voice but it can also be for example in a car where the introduction of voice recognition software has meant to be to decrease distraction well if it's not understanding what you're saying it's certainly not decreasing distraction it's increasing distraction and that could be very dangerous another example is you know the increasing use of voice recognition software in the medical world and certainly the studies that have been done on that show that some of the mistakes that are made when using voice recognition software uh, are patient critical and so you can sort of see a scenario in the future where we sort of because we don't realize this is happening, just see female doctors as less successful at treating their patients. And that's actually because of a software flaw. And the problem with this is partly that the data we have is so flawed, but it's also that the people doing the coding don't realize the problem. And so they aren't doing anything to try and mitigate it. And in fact, sometimes maybe making it worse. So one example I came across that I thought was really interesting and I sort of think about it every time. So I listen to the New York Times Daily Podcast and they often have this advert for, now I've said this, I'm going to forget the name of the company, but it's a company that will do recruitment for you and uses an algorithm to choose Mm -hmm. the best candidate. They find a quality candidate in minutes or something, I think is their tagline. And whenever I hear that advert, I always think, I wonder if they've accounted for the inevitable gender data gap in their data because there will be one.
1: Yeah, and can you say more about what that looks like, this, yes. the data gap in the algorithmic hiring space?
0: Yeah, so the issue there is that when you're training you know, an algorithm, you are giving it data and saying, this is what a quality candidate looks like. This is what we want. But if you aren't aware that the data you're feeding it may be geared towards producing the same kind of candidate again and again and again, you won't know to mitigate for that. So one example that I came across, which I thought was so fascinating, mainly because the coder who was relaying this was saying it to a journalist in a sort of, isn't this interesting? Look how brilliant our algorithm is, rather than saying, actually, this is an issue that we've discovered. So it was an algorithm that was designed to find the best coders. And what they did was they trawled through your, basically your internet browsing history. And they picked up all sorts of data points about what made a good coder. And one of the things that this coder revealed was that if you were a frequenter of a particular Japanese manga site, that correlated with being a very strong candidate. So that would give you a much higher score. Now, for anyone who knows anything about the different ways in which men and women live and the different ways in which men and women operate on the internet, that would ring immediate alarm bells. First of all, those kinds of sites tend to not be that welcoming to women. So it's just less likely that you're going to have a woman who's a frequenter of this site. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, women in the UK and the US have far less leisure time than men do because they do far more unpaid care work. So, in the UK and the US, women have five fewer hours of leisure time per week, and they do 75% of the unpaid care work. So, they just don't have as much time to spend on a Japanese manga site. And so, when you put those two things together, you start to think, well, is this actually showing me who the best candidates are, or is it showing me who the best male candidates are? And the other concerning thing about this is. But of course, because of the way machine learning works, which is to get better and better and better at whatever it is that you are feeding it, it is basically if you're feeding it biased data, getting better and better and better at being biased. And studies have shown that the bias amplification effect is enormous. So they did this, they tested this on a, an image data set, a very commonly used image data set where they were feeding it all these pictures and getting, it, the, getting the algorithm to label the images to say what was in them. And there were so many images of women in front of stoves that the algorithm basically decided that stoves meant that the person in front of it was female and sort of ignored all the other markers. And the number of women who were in front of stoves in the original data set was about 33%. But by the time the algorithm was done with it, They've labeled it at 68% because of the amplification effect. So there's all these things going on in tech. And there seems to be very little understanding of the impact that this will ultimately have. And, you know, it's one thing to be mislabeling a picture. But what happens when we introduce algorithms to medical diagnosis, as is in fact something that we're already starting to see? That is terrifying because the data in the medical world is so heavily male biased. And, you know, human doctors are misdiagnosing women based on the fact that we have this flawed data. What happens when you introduce an algorithm that is going to be learning to be biased and therefore getting better and better at being biased? And there just seems to be no appreciation of the dangers here.
1: Well, and for those who are listening who haven't heard some of our other episodes on data bias, um, I can recommend a couple interviews. We have one with Yuta Traveranis, who talks about exactly what you're mentioning. If you have the bulk of the data set focusing on one group, that your algorithms will ultimately serve those really well at the expense of others. Um, We have one with David Robinson, who focuses specifically on porting over old bad data to create new bad algorithms. And we'll put all those in show notes as well. Well, I think what's interesting here is not only the issue of algorithms working less effectively, but um, you've also identified in the book some examples of products that don't work as well for women, even in the tech space. So we already talked about voice recognition, but um, I, I thought some of the calorie counting stuff was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, so essentially, there are various issues there. One, for example, I mean... The problem with a lot of this is that, again, there isn't that much data out there. So in a way, this was a really difficult book to write because what I was writing about was the fact that we just don't know anything. The things that we do know suggest we have a big problem, but it's very, very hard to be able to pin down exactly where the problems are and what the solutions might be because the data is so sparse.
1: By that you mean that, like, when they talk about calorie counting, they aren't saying like women blah bitty, blah bitty, blah versus men blah bitty, blah bitty, blah. They're just saying like we got these results on un- yeah. specific. You,
0: you don't really know whether or not they've accounted for the sex of the person and the fact that you know women will burn fewer calories than men. But you know there are sort of anecdotes, for example, that Fitbit doesn't account for steps when you're pushing a your pram. And it doesn't account for steps when you're doing housework, you know, which are both things that women are more likely to be doing. And therefore, you know, those are activities that are more likely to be counting towards their ultimate steps goal. Whereas men who are using these kinds of products are more likely to be doing just unencumbered walking. So, you know, it's those sort of things where women's typical lifestyles haven't been factored into the design of the product Another example, which I think, again, rather like the car example, is, is just so obviously an example of forgetting that women exist, is the sort of very famous one of the Apple health kit, which allowed you to track your copper intake. You know, I've literally never met anyone who tracks their copper intake, but you couldn't track your period. And that just is so clearly a product of having a design team that didn't have enough women in it. Because there's no way that Apple did that on purpose. There is no way that they deliberately set out to exclude their female customers. What they did was forget that periods happen and that people have periods and they want to track them. And the reason that that happened was that there weren't enough people who had periods who were designing the products. And I suppose that is the other really big issue that I... I take with the tech world, and my big concern with the tech world is that it's so homogenous. You know, it is massively dominated by white middle class men, nine times out of 10 from America. And I have nothing against white middle class men from America. I'm dating one, he's very nice. But I wouldn't expect him to know all of the things that someone who doesn't have his life experience, who doesn't have the body that he has. I wouldn't expect them to know what that person needs. And so what's kind of terrifying about the tech world is we've sort of outsourced the future to these private companies staffed by these very homogenous groups and have told them, we've sort of let them deal with the future. You deal with everything that we need. Inevitably, there are going to be a lot of people who are left behind by this future because it's just not, they're just not going to have been factored in.
1: So before we move on to some broader broader, again, thinking about assumptions and data sets. Do you have a couple other examples we can talk about more specific to the tech and innovation space?
0: So sticking with Apple for a moment, um, I do seem to pick on Apple quite a lot. <laughs> um, but you know, there are other examples of where it's just very clear that there weren't enough women who were designing their products. So when they first launched Siri, there was a similar issue about having designed things that might be useful for men, but not so much for women. So if you told Siri that you had, had, were having a heart attack, Siri would be able to help and tell you what to do. If you said to Siri that you had been raped, Siri had no idea what being raped meant. You could find sex workers and you could find Viagra supplies uh, using Siri, but you couldn't find abortion providers. Now, all of those things aren't. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that Siri shouldn't be able to help you with the heart attack or shouldn't help be able to help you find Viagra. But it's very, very telling what the gaps were. The gaps were specifically things that might affect women: abortion, being raped, and sticking again with Apple. An issue that is again not going to be the end of the world, but incredibly frustrating is. The phones are just too big, and this actually isn't just Apple, of course, it's all smartphones are too big for the average woman's hand, and that, of course, is a problem for women's wrist and hand health. You know, the way I discovered this actually was I had an iPhone 6 and I developed a repetitive strain injury from trying to use my phone, and so I was delighted when they released the iPhone SE but less delighted when they failed to update it for about four years and then ultimately discontinued it. So I'm stuck with this very old phone that I can't update because there aren't any others that fit my hand properly. And it's just that kind of irritating example of just not having been thought about. You know, I don't have really tiny, dinky hands. I have very average woman-sized hands <laughs> And it seems completely unreasonable that I should have to choose between performance and hand health, you know, performance and not having a wrist that hurts all the time. And for someone who works in the media, as I do, who's a writer, who's an activist, who's a speaker, I use my phone a lot. And so it's, you know, it's a work tool. And it's very frustrating to have a work tool that just doesn't work.
1: Well, and I mean, when I hear that, my first thought is, if there was really a problem, wouldn't the market develop a solution for it? You know, if there really was a market for smaller phones, wouldn't they exist? I mean, how do you respond to that?
0: Well, I respond to that with when this book was released, one of the number one things, there are two things that women just could not stop talking about. One of them was queuing for the toilet. And the other one was phone sizes being too big for their hands. Um, it is something that absolutely is incredibly infuriating for women. But if there isn't a phone that you can buy to show that this is your preference, particularly one that is a higher-end one, you know, even when they introduced the SE, it wasn't the top spec. If you want a top spec phone, it has to be massive. So there's no way to indicate a preference for having a top spec small phone. I mean, that's a huge part of the problem. I did try to find out from Apple What this obsession was with having bigger and bigger phones, but it's basically, you know, it's like fault knocks in there. You just can't. (laughs) No one will reply to you. No one will talk to you. And so I haven't been able to get get to the bottom of it at all. But all I can say is that the response to that part of the book has been absolutely overwhelming, which certainly suggests to me that there is 100% a market for it. The other thing, of course, is that if there weren't a market for it, those pop sockets which is a solution to phones being too big for women's hands, wouldn't exist.
1: What are those? Sorry.
0: Oh, so they're these things that you stick on the back of the phone so that you can use the phone one-handed. And then, of course, there's the issue that they're too big for women's pockets as well. So there's just no question in my mind that obviously if women could buy the top-spec phone that was a size to fit their hands, they would absolutely buy it. But that just that option just isn't there.
1: And I hope so, somebody listening to this episode is, is, is hearing this and, and about to double down on that bet. Um, and yeah, I, I hope so.
0: Because I mean, there are so many examples, I think, from the book where you sort of think this is just ludicrous. There's so much money to be made in all sorts of areas. If people would actually design things for women, having women in mind, starting the process from the position of let's collect data on women and find out what they need and want, rather than just, here's the thing we made for men. Let's make it pink and try and sell it to women. You know, obviously that's not going to work. And I think that because there's been so much patronising design for women that is basically just, here's a man thing that we've made pink and a bit less good, that people are sort of scared of doing sex-based or gender-based design um, because it's got such a bad press. But, you know, that's the wrong way around. It's got a bad press because it's done lazily and sexistly. And if it were done well, there wouldn't be this issue. But the problem is that it takes people to actually fund these products and of course that is more difficult you know it tends to be women entrepreneurs who design products that will work for women because if you're an entrepreneur you tend to be designing something that fills a gap that you have experienced and so you've had a number of women trying to get innovation in breast pumps and that is a market that is I mean it's a huge market particularly in America where there is very little provision for uh, maternity leave, paid maternity leave. So American women go back much faster than, than a lot of European women and therefore they are using breast pumps. And, you know, there's been this one breast pump that has dominated the market for an incredibly long time and is just terrible. You know, it's really uncomfortable. You can't move around and do things while you're using it. You just have to sit stuck to this thing being milked like you're a cow. And you know, if there's anything that I know about new mums, is that they don't have time to just sit there being milked by a cow. They've got a million and one things to do, and they've got toddlers running around, and they've got a baby crying. You know, it's just so obvious that if they made one that enabled women to multitask and that was actually not uncomfortable to use, it would sell really well. But women had so much difficulty getting funding for these kinds of products because the vast majority of venture capitalists are men. And they just didn't understand that this was a market. And then, of course, on top of that is that because we don't collect data on women, it's much harder for female entrepreneurs to prove that there is a market, that Mm -hmm. there is an issue, that there is a gap. So, you know, that's a sort of very long roundabout way of answering your, your original question about surely the market would provide Actually, no, the market is incredibly bad at providing for women because we don't collect data on women and because most of the people who are funding things are men, so they don't know it from their own experience and so they don't know that there's a gap there.
1: Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers Customer Research Delivered. Customer Research Delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about customer research delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. Where's the low-hanging fruit for those of us who want to make money?
0: (laughs) Oh God, I'm not sure I can answer that question because the gaps are everywhere. So I think that for those of you who want to make money, what you need to do is start by, well, if you're women, start by thinking about what doesn't work very well for you? What annoys you all the time because you don't fit very well in it or because you struggle to use your hand to do it? There are all sorts of examples of tools that just don't work for women because they are too big for our hands. Yeah. So I would start by, as a woman, think about what, what are the areas that, that annoy you? What are the things that you always think, God, I really wish I, would, I could have that. And then the next thing is to collect sex disaggregated data. You know, that is the number one thing that should be done because there are all sorts of areas that you will discover <laughs> and things that, that are needed. So just to give you... An example, this isn't exactly a a money making uh, project, but it is an issue where we wasted so many resources and so much time simply because we didn't collect data on women. So, in lower income countries, most women still cook using a three stone stove. And I say women because it is usually women. I mean, it's almost exclusively women. And a three stone stove is basically just an open fire. And they are much more labor-intensive, much less efficient um, than, you know, obviously the ovens and stoves that we use um, here in America or, or the UK. And also they give off really toxic fumes. And so women who are often cooking on these stoves in unventilated rooms for sort of seven hours at a time will be taking in the equivalent of 100 cigarettes a day in terms of toxic fumes. It is the number one killer of children under five. It is the number one uh, environmental cause of female mortality. It's a really, has a really big health impact. Anyway, in the 90s, people realized actually this is a huge contributor to women's morbidity and mortality, and we should try and introduce clean stoves. But instead of starting from the basis of, let's talk to the women and find out what they need so we can design a stove that, will work for them and that they will use, there were decades worth of stoves being designed that women were not adopting. And every time these stoves were sent in and ended up collecting dust or not being used, someone would go in and do a report to find out what had gone wrong, what have we done wrong here with this stove? And every time they came to the conclusion that the problem was the women, the women needed to be educated on how great these stoves were. The thing is, in those very same reports where they were saying these women are stupid and need to be educated, they were giving all sorts of very good reasons why the women might not be using the stoves. Things like women not having purchasing authority, things like the stoves having been developed in such a way that they would only take in wood that had been split lengthways and cut into specific sizes, whereas the three stone stoves, you could just put anything in. And the women had to rely on the men to do the chopping, and the men weren't doing the chopping because they figured, well, she can cook on the old three stone stove. Similarly, they created ones that required maintenance, thinking, oh, well, the gender neutral household will take care of that. But the household isn't gender neutral. And there are tasks that were allocated to men and allocated to women and maintenance was a task that was allocated to men. And again, the men weren't fixing the stoves because they thought, well, she can do it on the other stove. And then sort of even more ridiculous things like it took much longer to cook using the stove which when you're already cooking for seven hours a day and you've got to fetch firewood and you've got to fetch water and you've got children to look after and you've got to take them to school and you've got all these other things going on. You know, women literally didn't have more hours in the day to spend. Then also the stoves required more attendance, which is the same issue. You know, if you're cooking for seven hours a day, you need to be able to multitask and these stoves didn't allow them to multitask. So it was very, very rational for women not to adopt these stoves. But report after report came back basically saying women are irrational and need educating. Until finally, in 2015, some researchers had the radical idea of going and speaking to women first and then devising a solution. And what they came up with wasn't a new fancy stove. It was this sort of metal sheet contraption that you can put on top of any three stone stove. It's made from recycled scrap metal, so it's very cheap. And because of the way it's made, you know, it's very adaptable to put on any stove and it cuts emissions and fuel use to levels comparable with any of the fancy clean stoves, you know, the fancy, expensive, swanky new clean stoves that people were trying to foist on these women without having bothered to find out what it was that they needed. So is anyone going to make a lot of money from that? No, they're not. But certainly we wasted a lot of money in the decades we spent trying to create these stoves for women without bothering to find out what they wanted. And it is also, I think, a really good example of how you can develop a solution that really works. And, you know, this is now, this was developed in India, but is now being used in parts of Africa and I believe in parts of Latin America. And, you know, so it's spread around the world and it's just this very basic thing. And it came from the very basic premise of starting off from what do women need
1: mm It's an important reminder that, so although I think in the book you do identify a lot of opportunities to create products, that it's it's not just enough to have an idea. it's You have to go to the extra steps to make sure that it's actually going to be used by your potential users. Right. Well, and one of the things that I loved about the book really broadly, and we touched on this a bit earlier, was it made me identify assumptions about the world that I had never seen that affect the solutions that we then develop. So I know we talked earlier briefly about the fact that why is it the car seat moves and not the pedals move? For yeah. instance, that's an assumption I'd never thought about. Like, why, why would that be? Can you talk about the Swedish snow clearing example? Because I think mm-hmm. this is a great example of things I had never questioned that there could even be another better way.
0: Yeah. But I mean, I think that also ties into you saying, well, why wouldn't the market just create these products? I think a lot mm-hmm. of the time, you know, so many responses I've had from women about the book is, God, yeah, that's really annoying. You know, things like the phones. It just doesn't occur to us to question that things don't have to be annoying and difficult because we're just so used to them being annoying and difficult. And so for the snow clearing example, again, this is an example of just having designed things for what works for men, assuming that it works for everyone, not on purpose, not because we want women to struggle when they're trying to get to work, but because the people who are designing things often are men and they design them for themselves, which is a perfectly normal human thing to do. No one is setting out to be difficult. But if you aren't collecting data, you won't necessarily be aware that what works for you doesn't work for everyone else. So the way they discovered this, it was in Sweden, and Sweden being, you know, the sort of perfect country it is that we should all go and live in, they were doing a gender audit of all their local government policies which I just love as an idea. I can't imagine that ever happening in Britain.
1: Yeah. Can you say <laughs> more about that. what a gender audit is?
0: Uh, basically, they were just looking at all their policies with a gender lens to see whether they worked for women as well as they worked for men. You know, it's an incredibly simple idea that should be done by default, but it, it isn't. And, and by doing a gender audit, that is how you pick up on these default assumptions. So, the assumption that they picked up on with the snow clearing was that clearing the snow in an order that worked for men was an order that worked for everyone. But it turned out it didn't because men and women have different typical travel patterns. So men tend to do a twice daily commute in and out of work, a very simple travel pattern, and they tend to drive. Women tend to use public transport partly because they tend to have less money than men, uh, but also because if a household has a car, men tend to dominate access to it. So women are more likely to be on public transport and they're also more likely to have a much more complicated travel pattern. Women tend to do what's called trip chaining. And that is basically lots of short interconnected trips as they combine their unpaid care work with their paid work. You know, dropping the kids off at school before they go into work, maybe picking up some groceries on the way home, dropping in on an elderly relative. And these take them on local roads and through sort of suburbs rather than in a sort of direct line in and out of town. And, and because they're using public transport and having to change, change bus or change train or whatever, they're more likely to be walking, you know, even just the walk to the bus stop. And so the result is that by doing the old school order, which was the order they had always done of clearing the major road arteries first, and then the local roads and sidewalks, which they, just to interrupt,
1: feels like feels right to me as a person who's right. just listening. Like, oh yeah, you clear the main roads first and the smaller yeah. roads second. That makes a lot of sense. What was the thing? problem with Everyone's
0: that? Everyone's just trying to get to work on the main roads, but actually, everyone isn't just trying to get to work on the main roads. Women is taking kids to school, for example. So what they did was they shifted it round and they started clearing. The pavements and local roads first, and then the major roads. And they did this because they figured, well, it won't cost us any more money, and it's easier to drive a car through three inches of snow than it is to walk through three inches of snow or to push a buggy through three inches of snow. And when they did this, they realized that not only did it not cost them extra money, it saved them money. uh, Because the admissions to accident and emergency as a result of injuring yourself in icy conditions fell dramatically because it is, it turns out, much harder to walk through three inches of snow or push a buggy through three inches of snow. And 70% of those injured in single person incidents were pedestrians. And the majority of those were female pedestrians. And so just by doing this simple switch of, from the order that everyone had just sort of thought because it's always the way that we do it and so we sort of assume, yeah, that kind of makes sense. By collecting data on the way in which men and women were traveling and whether or not that actually worked for men and women in the same, the same degree, they realized it didn't work for women as well as it worked for men and that women were actually falling over, hurting themselves and running up a fairly hefty, health bill which they saved just by this simple maneuver and I just think that example is so interesting for a number of reasons one it just shows the importance of collecting data and then you know designing policy or whatever it is that you're doing but also it highlights so well this problem of designing based on what you think works for you without questioning whether or not your assumptions about what works for you are correct and we're all guilty of it and an example that is so clearly not about malintent it was absolutely what people thought was the best thing for everyone but when you when you look into the data it's very clear that it's not of course it makes sense to clear the pavements for people who will be struggling more than than other people i mean it was but basically it was prioritizing commuters and car drivers over pedestrians and public transport users. And that just happens to be something that is gender split.
1: Well, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to ask, what can people do after they hear this? So a couple of things I've heard are make sure that you're collecting sex disaggregated data, that you're taking your data and splitting it out by gender. Um, it mm-hmm. sounds like if you're developing an algorithm or AI that you should make sure that you should know the kind of gender breakdown in your data set. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds like once you have an idea, you should make sure to test it with your, your users, in this case, in many of these instances, women. What else can, I guess, both on the de- sort of designer, entrepreneur, techie level, and then also on the consumer level, can people be doing to improve all these issues now that they've heard about them?
0: Well, I mean, you've taken my most important line, which is collect sex disaggregated data. I mean, really, that is the central argument of the book. If people come away from the book with just that, I will be delighted because that is the most important thing. But another thing that is, well, actually, is equally important. And actually, it's really part of the same issue is understanding. And this is really for people who are going to be having anything to do with HR, that having a diverse team is absolutely not just a nice little diversity tick box that you can say, oh, we had a woman here or, oh, we had an ethnic minority here. It's not about just what the team looks like. It's about what perspectives those team members bring to the product that you're creating. And a diverse team is going to create better products that work for more people just because they will have perspectives, different perspectives, and they will know about experiences that you won't necessarily know about. And there 's so many examples of this, you know one of the ones that I think is really interesting that I came across was this virtual reality game called Quiver, and a woman played it and wrote about how she'd been sexually assaulted playing the game and the two male designers you know responded brilliantly and created this fix for it so you could do a bubble over the, all of your whole body and that it would never happen again and I was so impressed with their response, but one of the things that they said really struck me because they said. How could we not have thought about this? You know, they said, we thought about someone being annoying and putting their hands in front of your face so that you couldn't see what you're doing. but We never thought of anyone sexually assaulting anyone. And they felt really bad about it. But actually, I think that just shows that why diversity matters. Because of course they didn't think about it. Because men don't tend to get sort of casually sexually assaulted the way women do. And if they had had women in that team, they probably would have thought of it. And again, you know, this it emphasizes the point, these are clearly really good men who get it and who care and who want women to be able to enjoy their game. They just didn't think about it. And there are so many examples that I came across in the book where just if they had had a diverse group of te- people around the table, the issue that they ultimately had would never have happened because whatever it was would have been picked up because it would have been obvious. So I actually see that as a form of collecting sex aggregated data Because if you are designing something, the people who are designing it should, as far as possible, represent the people who you ultimately want to be using it. And that is inevitably going to include women because we are, after all, 50% of the population. So that is one thing. The other thing that I think is really important that everyone does is to start, well, is to start marking the male. So stop allowing male to occupy the gender-neutral space because it's so damaging that it's able to do this and there are so many examples of the way it manifests i mean one of the issues i talk about in the in the introduction of the book is the way that we have somehow allowed the term identity politics or the idea of an identity to only mean anyone who isn't a white man as if white mm. men don't have identities of course they have identities you know if the politics of america and britain over the last few years have shown anything it's that white men certainly have identities and it's patently ridiculous to suggest they don't the only way that we can is because we live in a world where we're so used to white and male going without saying that it is able to occupy this neutral space so less sort of uh i guess egregious examples well i think they're very egregious but i'm sort of obsessed with it are things like you know when we talk about sport we allow men's sport to occupy the default and we only mark women's sports. So, you know, we say the World Cup versus the Women's World Cup. Well, if we're talking about men's football, we should just say men's football. If we're talking about men's baseball, we should say men's baseball. Because while these, all these instances when we're talking about them don't matter that much, you know, in that moment, they all add up and they're all adding and contributing to this world in which male occupies the default and that ultimately what this leads to is inconvenience for women but more than that it leads to a dangerous world for women you know because it means that we end up with medication that hasn't accounted for the female body it means we end up with cars that have been designed around the male body it means that we end up with algorithms that are going to misdiagnose women you know there's all sorts of ways in which this is so about so much more than just a phone being too big for your hand or uh, a voice recognition software not recognizing your voice these can be inconvenient but they can also be life-threatening and so if there's something that you can do that is as small as just saying men's football when you mean men's football why would you not do it?
1: Well put. And with that, I'd love to turn to our think a little different round, our final round of questions.
0: Okay. What's
1: something you've changed your mind about in the last few years?
0: So over here in the UK, we've had this little thing called Brexit happening. It's been pretty awful. I've heard of it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm against it. And I was so horrified by the fact we had a referendum in the first place. I was so horrified with the way that it was fought. On both sides. I mean, the Leave side engaged in really racist tropes, and that was awful to witness, but the remain side was also pretty poor. And so I just felt referendums are divisive and terrible and we shouldn't have them. Now I haven't changed my mind about that, but I did change my mind about whether or not we should have a second referendum. And You know, I I originally had been very, very against the idea of having a second referendum, but I came around to it because it felt like the only solution to the massive mess that we put ourselves in by having the initial referendum without having defined what Brexit meant. You know, we just said, do you want to leave the EU or remain in the EU without defining what leaving the EU looked like? Because there are lots of different options, you know, how we would do it, how long it would take, anything like that. And so people were just able to project whatever they wanted.
1: Do you have any odd habits that embody your particular worldview?
0: (laughs) Yes, correcting people when they use gender neutral to mean men.
1: (laughs) I thought that might happen, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's a view that's widely held by your peers that you just aren't totally convinced by?
0: Well, I'm not sure that it's exactly... A view, it's more about the tone of a lot of debate that happens, particularly on social media. But, you know, social media has become so important for politics that it's really crept into it. And this sort of idea of not being able to work with people or engage with people unless you agree with them on everything. And that if people disagree with you on one thing, that they're sort of bad people. And this is absolutely not everyone, but it's a definite issue that, that I've seen crop up again and again. And I really don't like it and think that it's really not conducive to making any kind of change. Because ultimately, I don't think people who disagree with me politically are bad people. You know, I come from a family that has different politics to the politics that I've ended up having. And I know that they're not bad people, and I love them. So it's really important to me to be able to talk to people who I don't agree with Because ultimately, I think politics shouldn't be about talking to people who already agree with you and saying, yes, aren't we all good and aren't all the other people really awful? It should be about convincing people and changing minds and bringing people along. And I worry that the way too much politics happens now is about being divisive and about telling people that they're bad and wrong. And, And I know that that's difficult because I get really angry and I'm not perfect and I definitely make mistakes and I definitely... Intemperate when I should be calm, but I definitely don't see that as a virtue. I see that as a failing, and and I think the problem is when people see that as a good thing, as something to aim for. I think that that is really sad, and I think it's really damaging.
1: Do you have an ask for the audience?
0: Well, it's can I have two?
1: You sure can.
0: I can. Okay, good. So my first ask is to join me in my weird habit of correcting people when they say uh, football when they mean men's football the second thing is, please buy my book.
1: <laughs> yes. And the book, again, the American title is Invisible Women Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Um, and where can people find you online? And we're going to happily link to everything in show notes as well.
0: I am on Twitter. My handle is C. Perez. And I've got a website, CarolineCriadoPerez.com.
1: Caroline Criado Perez. Thank you so much for joining us on Innovation for All.
0: Thank you for having me. I hope you
1: enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.